Hey there, mucho gusto, and welcome to another episode of Detective Writer. I'm your host, Sally, aka Detective Writer, and today I wanted to introduce you all to a very special guest. I am super excited to introduce all of you to a fellow author, John Bukowski. John, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Sally. It's my pleasure. Um, glad to be here. Thank you. It's a tremendous pleasure. So if you don't mind, John, I thought we could get started with just talking a little bit about what was your motivation in writing? What was determination for you? What were any obstacles that you faced? And just I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about your writing journey. Right. I, uh, I have the dubious distinction of probably being the most overeducated fiction writer. <laughs> really? Um, there may be somebody that's more has more than two doctorates but uh, uh, I don't know about them. No, I actually uh, always loved reading. And uh, when I was, I remember going to uh, the library in summer afternoons in Detroit when I grew up, because uh, it was air conditioned and there were books there. And, you know, spend several hours reading and then take some books home. So I've always loved reading. And uh, I even enjoyed writing when I was in high school. Um, wow. But my focus was science. And uh, I studied, I got a bachelor's in science, and then went on to get a doctor of veterinary medicine degree. Oh, wow. And that's really interesting that you talk about that, John, because I remember yeah, hearing I, I practiced for about seven years in oh, Southeast wow. Michigan. And uh, after about my 500th youth in Asia, I wanted to do something else that didn't require so many life and death decisions. I can understand that. People don't realize it's a pretty stressful job. I can Um, imagine. So I went to, uh, went back to school in public health, public health epidemiology, which uh, thanks to COVID, many people now know means disease detective rather than skin doctor. Really? That's amazing. And most, a lot of people think it's uh, dermatologist as epidemiologist. Anyway, um, <laughs> I got a master's and then a doctorate in uh, public health epidemiology. I did that for about 15 years. And while I was doing that, I worked for industry, I worked for academia a little bit, I worked for government. The people I worked for started to figure out that I was uh, a good writer. That's and amazing. they started writing more than I was doing research. And I enjoyed it. I got a little tired of the corporate life, and in the early 2000s, uh, 2004, I think it was. Really? Okay. I, I transitioned to a uh, freelance medical writer, where you write journal articles for people, and website content, and consumer handbooks, and uh, I did some radio scripts uh, in the medical technical field. And wow. uh, so that, that got me writing more and more. And then, when the Great Recession hit in 2008, 2009, a lot of my business dried up. So I I didn't have that to do, but I had time and the gift of time. And so I always wanted to be a novelist. I think every everybody who writes anything, whether it's copywriting or uh, technical manuals or whatever. Would love to write the great American novel. Yeah, it's so I, I had really some great. time. So I started working on it, and I completed one. Wow! It, it's still on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> wow! But uh, about it got me hooked, and so even when my business picked up medical writing, I kept doing uh, fiction writing, short stories, and, and novels on the side. And around 2000, last year actually, uh, I got my first one published. And that was uh, Project Suicide. I remember which, you talking about that, yes. Which is a story of how a cure for Alzheimer's disease is perverted into an assassination drug. Now, high profile politicians are killing themselves, and only a drunken genius can save the country. It was a medical or techno thriller, kind of in the vein of Michael Crichton or Robin Cook, mm-hmm. those guys, those physicians who wrote uh, thrillers. I definitely and, imagine. It did pretty well, and it's out there. People can buy it. It's uh, would enjoy, enjoy anybody wants to buy it. And uh, 
And I was also working at the time on, I'm always working on something. <laughs> yeah. Sure enough. You know, you got to write every day. Yes. Or almost every day. I, I, I like to say you have to treat it like a business and like a hobby. Because yeah. uh, as a business, you have to have the discipline to do it. Yes, you definitely do. Especially with all the rejection that goes with writing. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if you want to go into writing because you're going to make a million dollars, good luck. <laughs> Hope you're doing Stephen King. But uh, the uh, the other thing too is you have to treat it like a hobby because with all the rejection and stuff, you wouldn't do it if you didn't love doing it. That is so totally I'm, true. I'm kind of driven to do it now. I love that, and the fact that you give such utter positivity. Because I can definitely attest to me writing. I first wrote my book when I was 20 for a course in college. And mm -hmm. I actually had taken a break because when the pandemic hit, I was so crazy busy being a senior in college, juggling two part-time jobs and three internships. I actually put my book to rest for a minute. But as soon as the pandemic hit, I found motivation to start writing every single day. And... I can definitely, I can definitely vouch that when you really have a passion for something, it doesn't matter how long it takes, but if you have the drive and determination to see it through, anything is possible. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. I, 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 I also often thought that writing was a lot like getting my PhD in that it's a series of daily tasks over time, uh, small steps that add up to something big. And if you if you just do that uh you know you're going to reach the goal That's and true. Uh, so like i said i write i write every day or at least try to sometimes it's three four hundred words sometimes it's 1500 words depends on how i'm going um but my second book which just came out end of march early april so it's real new wow uh, is called checkout time and it's the story of a extortion bomber known mysteriously as Conrad Hilton, oh. who wants to make a killing from a group of hotel owners. And he's not above killing to make a point. He's, wow. he's a beautiful FBI agent and a handsome government researcher pursue him until Conrad turns the tables and the hunters become the hunters. So, th so that's, uh, I'll tell you a little bit how I came up with the idea for that one. Yes, of course. I'd love to hear about it. Um, I was in a hotel for a business trip probably about 15, 20 years ago. And I looked up at a, the ceiling was on the fourth floor, the top floor of the hotel. <clears throat> and there was a trap door in the suspended ceiling. And I thought, huh, you could, it was, it's like, what if? What if you put something yeah. up there? What would you put? Well, you could put uh, stolen microfilm, in which case you have a spy thriller. You could put uh, mob money, in which case you have a crime thriller or someone, some hotel guest finding the money and, you know, the mob's after him, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, my my go-to thing was to put a bomb up there. Uh, wow. <laughs> Because I'm a, I grew up a little bit of a pyromaniac. I uh, I loved fireworks. I loved things that go boom. Uh, <laughs> I made my own gunpowder. Um, really? And, yeah, you could do it. The formula mine wasn't great, and you know it, it didn't burn real well. But it was. See, it was see, that was stuff that I would try to avoid as a kid because I was just like fire, nothing. <laughs> yeah, what's well, more of a it's more of a guy thing, at least when I was growing up. Okay. And, Anyway, so that was my go-to thing. And so if you put a bomb up there, why do you put a bomb up there? And I immediately thought of a movie that I loved from the 1970s. Not a lot of people have seen it. I thought it was a very good movie. I watch it every year. Uh, I'm gonna be talking about it on a podcast in just a couple weeks. Oh, really? And it's called Roller Coaster. It has George Siegel, Timothy Bottoms, uh, Richard Widmark, Henry Fonda, big cast, good cast. Yeah. And it's about a extortion bomber, but he bombs uh, amusement parks. And he's trying to get amusement park owners to pay him so he won't bomb their amusement parks. 
So for me, that was an initial idea. And I said, okay, he could be, there could be a distortion bomber. And, uh, you know, how are they going to chase him? How are they going to catch him? How, why does he chase them? You know, uh, uh, there's ever increasing levels of violence because, you know, you can, you can, do different kinds of bombs that cause bigger and bigger bangs or yeah. more and more yeah, um, makes sense. so it was fun doing research for that because uh, I got to get online and look how you make a, how you make homemade napalm really? how, you make, how you make thermite which will burn through steel uh, you know how you make plastic explosive oh and my gosh. Uh, I sometimes think maybe the FBI is looking at my uh, search history and and got keeping tabs on me because I'm I'm looking for all these different uh, explosive and incendiary uh, compounds. But uh, but yeah, so I got to do that, and so it was uh, it was a lot of fun writing in that respect for me. And the characters, I love the characters. Uh, they came very organically. Uh, it was one of the most fun things that I've ever written. I can imagine. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> And I also had another interesting piece of research that I did for it. Uh, the action takes place primarily between uh, uh, Southern Ohio and Eastern Tennessee, which is a place which is I'm very familiar with because uh, I live in Eastern Tennessee now, but we also have a place in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, gotcha. So I've been up and down the I-75 corridor quite a bit. I can imagine. Uh, and uh, I, knew, I knew that I'd need to have FBI offices because the FBI is involved. One of my main characters, Sally Butterworth, or as they nickname her, Sally Pancakes, uh, is the beautiful FBI agent. Another Sally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the male protagonist is Thomas Tomasinski, and his nickname is Tom Tom. And uh, so I had fun playing with those. But I knew that the FBI agents would be in the office sometimes. And how do you portray an FBI office? Well, you can portray it the way people are most familiar with it. Anybody who's seen Silence of the Lambs or any of the FBI TV shows has a fair idea in their head what it might look like. So you could use the reader's imagination to fill that in. And I thought it'd be nice, add a little authenticity to it, if I could see inside. So I contacted both the Knoxville and the Cincinnati field offices of the FBI, asked for a tour. Uh, in the Cincinnati field office, they said no. It is, uh, the decision is made by the special agent in charge who is the head of the field office. And they said no. Really? The special agent in charge of the Knoxville field office said, sure, what do you want to do it? So. Uh, I think it was the summer of 2018 or thereabouts. I went to the Knoxville field office of the FBI, got a one-hour tour by a very nice PR lady, uh, met the special agent in charge, saw the big uh, TV screens where they follow uh, breaking stories, uh, saw where they bring in prisoners and interrogation rooms, met the armorer, learned uh, a little bit about what they shoot, and... Uh, Got to see the interior, all four floors, and uh, it was very interesting. And some of that detail went into the book. And so there is a little bit more authenticity in that portrayal of the FBI than uh, is in a lot of uh, writing about the FBI. For me, when I tell you, I wrote um, a murder mystery thriller detective based book. Sure. And I tell you, I had no idea where to start. I had to do so much research, but it's like, I feel like I'm learning from a master right now. I swear. Well, that's that's the thing. I teach an actual a workshop on uh, research in fiction writing, because I've done a lot of research in science, obviously. And uh, one of the things that I, I, I tell people is, you know, there's an awful lot that you can get right off the computer. You know, the internet and Google and Wikipedia have been fantastic for fiction writers. You no longer have to visit every site you write about. You can see them on a map. You can see them, the buildings that are close by and the businesses. 
you can see an actual satellite view. Uh, likewise, all the research that I did for uh, like how to make explosives and stuff, I was able to do right off of Google. I did not have to go to a library for it. So that's, that's uh, you know, research is necessary when you're writing something like this because otherwise it will be unauthentic and people who know will say that's not right and you don't want too much of that yeah that is definitely true to be to be a good fiction writer is to be a good con man you're both in the business of telling lies fiction is a lie uh you make the story up but there has to be enough truth in it enough research to be done the the people buy it they'll say wow i'm going to follow you writing is like being a con man because you're both telling lies but there's there has to be a certain amount of truth in the lie at least initially so that the people will buy it and that's the importance of research you don't need too much of it and you certainly can bend the truth because obviously it's fiction but you first have to establish that nugget of authenticity and it's really great that you bring up that point, John, because I think that even fiction, a lot of times, it's always necessary to bring creativity, but if you really want to bring some truth to it. Because I wrote a completely fiction-based book, but I needed to bring some truth as to how many times mm-hmm. someone yeah. can use stuff like ricin and how deadly it can be if you, do, if you use it in multiple dosages or how many... Um, doctor patient relationships actually and a percentage of them can actually damage patient confidentiality things like that so i completely agree you i i I actually managed a bioterrorism website for about three years seriously Uh, oh my gosh and uh, so yeah ricin is one of the things people are worried about it's it's worse if injected yes that is very deadly if injected uh, yes. As a matter of fact, there's a very famous assassination of some uh, dissident was killed by the Russians in Prague or something like that by a little BB, a little tiny BB loaded with ricin that was injected with an umbrella, a little umbrella gun. And uh, I so yeah, ricin, ricin, botulism, anthrax, all, all, all the biggies for bioterrorism poisons. Uh, and uh, uh, biological agents that's i did not know that because it's really interesting because when i was first looking up ricin i heard that it was used that that is actually used in a lot of chemotherapy treatments and it was mind-boggling to me because the more that i looked at how highly potent this this drug actually is it's it's, it's gotten from castor beans and that's what gives castor oil its kick if you give it orally it irritates the gi tract and that's where castor oil was as, as a, uh, uh, a a cathartic, a uh, something to cause diarrhea or cause uh, uh, bowel movements. But uh, it's very deadly when ingested. Yes, and it was mind-boggling to me to know that. And a lot of times, it's actually used in cancer treatments. And I thought, how can this be so deadly? But it's used for a cancer treatment. And I was looking more about it in my Most- book. It's just. Right. Most care- ch- chemotherapeutics are poisons. Uh, they cause the side effects that you see, the vomiting, the diarrhea, the hair loss, all part of the poisoning. Uh, but they kill the rapidly dividing, dividing cancer cells Which is extremely important to, you know. <laughs> so it's a trade-off. You know, you're getting a poison, but it's killing the cancer, so you deal with the poison. Yeah, and that's... Uh, interesting because i have actually a relative who's actually in cancer treatment right now and when i was looking at a lot of the treatment ricin was actually a thing but it's not used like extremely to the point obviously that it can be fatal but the more that i was researching it it's it does help kill a lot of cancer cells but the more that i was looking into it uh, it's not healthy but if it can help kill cancer cells The old adage, uh, write what you know, is is really more than just an adage. It's really a good idea. Uh, there's a reason why Robin Cook and Michael Crichton wrote uh, medical thrillers and techno thrillers is because they were trained in that. 
So they had to do less research to make it authentic. Uh, you know, somebody who writes a, a courtroom drama who's a lawyer has less research to do. Cops like Joseph Wamba, who write uh, uh, police uh, thrillers, uh, they know how cops work. So if, you, if you're a plumber and you write about plumbing, it's going to be much more authentic than if you're a writer and you write about courtroom dramas. Yeah. You can write about courtroom dramas, but you've got to do a lot of research to make it authentic so that people won't roll their eyes and close the book. That's, that's actually really true. And I think especially, like, in a lot of times, I feel like writing can bring out so much of an aspect, like, whether, it's be, whether it be healing or learning or just like something to really like bring about it's just amazing to see like how many forms of writing brings about research dedication and passion i that's absolutely incredible so you bring up an amazing point yeah it's uh and the research can be fun it definitely like I, can. I had a lot of fun finding out how you make uh thermite and or how you make uh napalm that kind of stuff you know that's me but uh, somebody else might have fun finding out how you, uh, how, how a gourmet uh, chef cooks or whatever. Oh, wow. That is true. I, can I be, nobody come for me for this, but I actually did not know what thermite is until you discussed it. I'd never even heard of the term. It's an incendiary compound that was used during the war, World War II, as a uh, incendiary bomb. It's basically a mixture of powdered rust and powdered aluminum. And it's hard to get to burn. But once it does start burning, it burns at four to 5,000 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and will actually melt through metal and cannot be put out with water or standard firefighting agents because it brings its own oxygen supply. You can't smother it you can't uh, wash it away and so it's for, for me writing checkout time it was a great thing to have in there as as one of conrad's little surprises wow i i can't believe i never knew of that until just now i even through a podcast you learn something new every single day well it's it's not just kind of thing that most people know i'm a military history Buff. Yeah, I know so, you, you talked about how you were a vet. I can imagine just how much we're able to learn and be able to process a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, it's, it's, veterinary medicine is, uh, it's very enjoyable in some respects. Like I said, there's a lot of stress associated with it, but there's awful lot of material you have to accumulate over your training and experience on multiple animal species. Uh, when I was working at uh, an industry, one of my bosses was a physician and he wanted me to write about childhood asthma and look up uh, causes for childhood asthma. I actually had that and for some reason okay. as I grew up an adult it it actually went away and I have no idea. Yeah, that's common. How. That's common. I had no but, idea how it even went away. But he said to me, he cautioned me, he said, now John, this is a human illness. Can you handle that? And I said, Steve, Human medicine is easy. <laughs> I can imagine, yes. You've got one species and they talk to you. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, that is true. Humans, I feel like if you really get to know a person and being a human yourself as, as we're just everybody in the world, I feel like we all discover little traits and little aspects about ourselves that it just makes it easy for us to learn about one another. And it's kind of really unique. And so having been a veterinarian and having also been a uh, public health professional who had managed a bioterrorism website, writing about Project Suicide, my first book, uh, which is, you know, about genetics and, and uh, things like that and uh, how, you, how you create drugs, that was kind of right in my wheelhouse. So again, I didn't have to do as much research. I had to do some. But I knew where to look because of my background in medicine. Wow. And I can't... Oh my gosh. I literally feel like I'm learning from a master here. I 
I actually have a few friends who are vets and they've told me just a little bit of how they were able to discover like different aspects of medicine rather than typical over-the-counters, different little um, tricks that you could use to like pinpoint when someone is lying to you or when someone mm-hmm. is telling the truth. That's absolutely incredible. I, I feel like I'm learning from another master here. I swear to God. <laughs> Well, I swear I'm not trying to kiss up to you. I swear I'm telling the truth. <laughs> that's the thing. In in both books, there's quite a bit of fact, and there's quite a bit of BS. And once you establish the fact to get people to buy into it, then they'll kind of believe the BS too. And that's the fiction part. You know, I also tell people in workshops that, you know, you're not writing a technical manual. You're writing a fiction. And so it should be interesting, but you can stretch the truth. And you have to make it entertaining above all. You know, technical manuals can be boring. Thrillers should be exciting. Yes, they should. So, or, or detective uh, uh, crime, crime uh, police tutorials or crime novels. Uh, uh, I'm a big fan of Elmore Leonard. Uh, the guy who wrote Justified and all that stuff. And uh, he writes, he wrote, he passed away, uh, thrillers, crime, police tutorials, all bunch of stuff like that. So it's a great, it's a great genre that the general thriller, suspense, uh, mystery story, uh, super genre, if you want to call it. Super genre, now that's incredible. I've never heard that before. I think that's actually you bring up a good point, John, because I feel like when it comes to especially thriller writing, I always seek the little dun 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 version. Like I always want there to be a little bit of suspense. I didn't right. realize Absolutely. I did not realize how many times I can actually incorporate actual comedy, a little bit of romance, a little bit of fantasy. I feel like there are so many aspects of writing that you don't have to limit yourself to just one thing. Um, that's what I, I find incredible. Checkout time's only been out for a short time, so it, you know not a lot of people have read it yet. But the feedback I've been getting has been that you know while it's a thriller and it moves quickly and you like the characters, there's some humor in there, which breaks the tension. You know, if you're on a roller coaster nonstop for 300 pages, uh, that can be a bit much. But if you've got little things of humor tucked in and little, as you say. Uh, relationship issues, a uh, little romance, or uh, uh, things such as that. Well, that kind of breaks some of the tension. Uh, it's still very much of a uh, of a roller coaster, a ticking time bomb kind of deal, but uh, gives you some time to take a breath. Definitely, I completely agree because I feel like I keep. I think I say I feel a lot, but I actually am so fine just to say. How much am I agreeing with you? Because writing, and I think reading, and then when you find your own place, when you set your own foot in a book, there are so many aspects that you can go to, and I love it. There's just so much imagination and creativity that doesn't stop. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I, I know some writers uh, uh, like John Gilstrap who wrote the uh, uh, Jonathan Graves novels. Really, uh, he says. There is no right or wrong. There are no rules in writing. And to a certain extent, that's that's true. Now, when you break a rule, quote unquote, say writing a thriller or something like that, you should have a good reason and you should realize that some of the readership aren't gonna like that. But it's basically your book. Yes. And you you, you choose have to write what appeals to you and hope other people like it. That was me always wishing and hoping that someone was gonna like my book. Because you can't write, you can't try to divine what people will like and then craft something directly to their taste. First of all, tastes vary to a great extent and it's gonna be authentic. It won't come through you, it'll be unauthentic. Uh, You know, you have to write through you. It's like an actor. You have to uh, develop the character through you and you can't try to paint on a character that's not integral to you in some aspect. That is definitely 
true because when you're writing something it could be an article it could be a blog it could be a book or even a podcast because it's the same aspect like for a job you want to do something that you feel passionate and determined in because you're not gonna have fun and you're not gonna enjoy it and to be frank like you said john people are gonna think and say what they want you can't please everybody but your dreams if you're determined it can go so far and it can go to such great lengths I once heard uh, Phil Rosenthal, the guy who created Everybody Loves Raymond, he was uh, being interviewed, comedy writer, and they said, well, who's your, when you're writing, who's your audience? You know, who are you writing for? He goes, I'm writing for myself and the other writers in the room. He said, your hope is that it will be relatable to a larger group of people, but you can't tell what the lady in Minnesota is going to think funny. Yeah. Uh, you you have to just go by what you and the other people who are paid to write think is funny and so very much the same thing i think with writing fiction uh if you write something that entertains you that uh surprises you uh that's one of the reasons that i uh, that i and many people don't use a uh, an outline like a sense of outline anyway in writing uh thrillers for example because yeah. When a surprise happens to you, you didn't know something was going to happen this way. It's much more going to carry through to the reader than if you if you got that out well in advance. Now, writing mystery, like a murder mystery, you have to plot to a certain extent because you have to create your uh, your red herrings. You have to create your uh, possible suspects. You have to know who did it. Drop everywhere so there's a, a, a certain amount of plotting that has to happen but for thrillers oftentimes it's it's best just to write at least for me it's best just to to write and let the story develop let it reveal itself yes I 100% agree I feel like there's so much suspense like when I was first writing my book, I remember thinking I didn't want to just reveal everything at the beginning. I wanted to gradually not just tell everything at the end, but I wanted to include flashbacks. I wanted to include like little aspects that would just show the reader, okay, I can see why the character did this. I can see why they why this place means so much to them. I can see why they're so determined to go after this person. So I feel like for me, I couldn't. I I agree. Like I didn't want to just reveal everything off the bat. I wanted it to be like something open, so someone could just like be at the edge of their seat wanting to know what's up right and that's and 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 that's the point and it's of course it's hardest in the middle of the thrower novel because the opening is usually that's usually your idea your what if and you usually the first five ten thousand pages are relatively easy to write and oftentimes the last five ten thousand pages are relatively easy to write because uh, you have a clear a fairly good idea of where this roller coaster is heading it's that middle 60,000 words that you have to gradually develop the characters, gradually uh, provide motivations for the uh, killer or whatever, and uh, uh, do that while you're, you've got that ticking clock going. Uh, the, uh, the roller coaster is starting to pick up speed. Uh, so it's, it's the middle, the muddle middle, if they call it, is much more difficult. But that can be fun too and it really hit the right chord that is 100 true because i think as well you when you're writing something you can just really like pinpoint how you want your story to go it may have you may have envisioned it one way but then you can envision it in another way so that it all depends on you and i just feel like there's so much imagination and creativity that you can create whether it be non-fiction you can definitely say the characters decide sometimes you know the, the character did something that i didn't really think they were going to do they surprise you even as well yeah and it's it's like people laugh well how can that be you're writing a character yeah but you can you can hear these people in your head at least i can I hear the dialogue, I hear the accents they might have, for example, at checkout time, you know, there's quite a few Southern people. And so, you know, you, you hear this in your head and uh, they become living things, if you want to put it that way. They evolve, they do things, they surprise you sometimes. And uh, you can try to write it a different way, but 
you always come back to it because that's what the character wants to do. 100%. I, at first, when I started writing my book, I thought that me and my character were completely different, complete opposites. But then as I started writing, I ended up getting to know her and I thought, I actually realized that, wow, she is exactly like me. It just yeah. took me to really write her journey to realize that we are exactly the same. Well, it's 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 like an actor. You're you're whatever it is, whatever character's there, it's coming through you. It has some aspects of you, or some aspects of people you've known, or some aspects of people you've watched. Uh, actors and and writers are both people watchers. You know, you see how people behave uh, on the street, in a mall, whatever, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, you bring these in to how you paint characters. And uh, so it comes through you. It's uh, all of it is filtered by you. So it's going to have a large aspect of your personality in it. Exactly. Because even if you're writing a fiction book, a thriller book, or you're writing a book that you feel like you're not completely related to in any way, but you're putting your passion, you're putting your heart, you're putting your soul and your brains into it, at some point, you're going to find that you are not that different, but you're just exploring a new world. You're exploring new territory, and it's it's absolutely incredible. Just I couldn't think how close I was to my character and how exactly like we were. Well, that's one of the reasons that I dislike reading. When a novelist I like either dies or stops writing and starts paying people to write, so that someone else writes a. Uh, uh, instead of Robert Parker writes a Jesse Stone novel or something. When you read it, you can tell it's not coming through that author. That author's mannerisms are being painted on it by somebody else. It's like when somebody uh, tries to copy a great master. It's a different brushstroke. And so even though it's the same characters and similar storylines and stuff, it doesn't have the same feel, not the same authenticity. I thank you so much for letting me know that, John, because the fact that you're so open and being so personal about your writing journey, I, I can definitely just thank you for that because the fact that you're just giving so many tips and so many suggestions, I feel like that's absolutely incredible and you have so many so many suggestions so many tips i feel like i really want to learn from you i would love to take a class of yours honestly well actually i don't know where you are but i'm in new york city <laughs> new york city okay yeah. that's, a, that's a bit of a distance um a little I'm gonna, yeah i'm, I'm going to be teaching my uh research writing workshop uh research and fiction at uh, louisville kentucky in mid-july Oh, really? and, a, and a thing called uh, Enter the Imaginarium or the Imaginarium Conference which is a kind of eclectic mix of writers, screenwriters uh, gamers, game designers uh, uh, independent filmmakers and it's kind of a fun uh, I, I went to it for the first time last year, it's kind of a fun several days and uh, I'll be on panels this year and I'll be doing my workshop and so anybody who's out there wants to go to Louisville, Louisville's a fun town. Yes. In I, I've never been, but I actually know a few people who have been in Kentucky and they told me it's absolutely, it's beautiful. They told me that it's really surrounded by suburban life. And even when we started this call, John, I've, been, I've actually been told like it's a mix of suburban and urban, but I've never been. So I don't, don't nobody quote me on it. Yeah, bourbon uh, distilleries are fun to visit. Uh, I've been to several and uh, the process by which they make these massive quantities of liquor that have to be aged for anywhere between 2 and 12 years depending on the brand and what they're making uh, is really quite uh, quite amazing. Yes it is and I actually John since we started this Zoom call I've been I've just been so in awe the fact that you're teaching people a, a lot of your craft, the fact that you have so much to say, and being a former vet, I'm sure you've gone through a few obstacles, like through your writing journey. Can I ask you personally, like, what were some obstacles that you faced, and how did you overcome them to become the success that you are? Well, the the, the one of the first ones I faced, and this was a 
uh, a byproduct of being a technical writer. In technical writing, it's important, certainly it's important to write clearly, but it's also important to be concise. You know, don't, don't get right to the point. You know, uh, you're making a point in the research. What did it find? What, what does it suggest? You don't dilly-dally around with it. Whereas in fiction writing, you're filling the page more with uh, the character, developing the character, uh, adding hints about who the villain might be. Uh, you know, you're filling 90,000 words in a thriller. So if you do that too quickly and to get right to the point, it's, it's a little boring. And so that's where I always mention you're not writing a technical manual because I've written technical manuals. And you can make them more entertaining, but they're ultimately not that entertaining. They're a little boring. Like pamphlets, yeah, basically. And that's the thing about uh, writing in general, writing fiction, is most people's lives are boring. You want to be authentic, but you don't want to include uh, the 95% of our life that is routine. You know, no one wants to read that. They don't even want to live that, even though they do. Um, so you want to distill out the conflict. Drama is conflict. You want to distill out the interesting and put that on a page believably. And uh, that's basically, I think, in my, in my mind, it's the essence of entertaining fiction writing, no matter if it's thriller or mystery or straight literature. 1000% because I think that's actually one of the things that I've struggled with in the past. I felt like maybe I'm being over dramatic, trying to add like a, an intense scene almost every five minutes, but then I realized I have to really, really think okay, if this is a fiction book, yes, but you want to make it realistic. In, in real life, unless we're living in a soap opera, drama doesn't happen for everybody every five minutes. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't... Uh, I'm pretty sure we don't get a shocker every single minute of our lives. We have moments where we will enjoy ourselves, where we laugh, where we cry, where we get mad. We don't just have like a freaking uh, telenovela scene. That is definitely something that I had to learn as well. I'll tell you an interesting story about uh, that. I was at Thriller Fest about five or six years ago. You've been? Which, I want to go so bad. Yeah, it was in, it's in New York City. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was in classes with some fairly well-known you know, novelists. And one of them was actually a, a screenwriter. And he was kind of a, screen, uh, a script doctor. He used to travel to different places to... Uh, to look at programs that weren't doing as well as the people thought they should and to help them uh, fix them. So he talked about this one that he went to in Spain where it was the, the network's top show or whatever and the ratings were dropping and they didn't know why. So he watched an episode and watched a couple episodes and he said at the beginning of each episode there was like five to 10 minutes of this family having breakfast and just talking. There's not really much to go on from that, basically. Yeah. And he said, well, what, what is that? They said, well, there are people having breakfast. And he goes, why? And the guy goes, well, everybody has breakfast. And he goes, you're not understanding me. Why do I want to see them having breakfast? <laughs> And that's the point. Yes, it's part of everybody's day is they may sit down and have breakfast, they sit down and have lunch, but that's not really entertaining unless it's developing the character or it's advancing the story. What did he say in response? Um, the guy was like flabbergasted and he said, you know, you don't have any reason for people to want to watch the opening of this show because <laughs> it's boring. Yeah. You know, and my, my beloved Elmar Leonard used to say in his tips on writing that he never described anything that did not advance the character or the story. Now, that may be a bit extreme, but it's a good point. 
you don't really need to know stuff that doesn't move you along the journey of this book. I I get that. I feel like I don't know if you ever watched Lifetime, but I feel like there's so many scenes. I every moment of every single second, you will see the character, the the evil character doing something, and it's moving the story along. Sure, we will have like a maybe a breakfast scene or two, but the majority of those films is. We're getting closer to figuring out why the killer is doing this, and then the killer is almost exposed. Right. It's uh, like I said, you take a, you take, you distill out the interesting, the exciting, the conflict of life, and that's the book. Um, you learn about the characters through that, but you're learning about the characters is helping the reader know why they behave the way they behave. Why they're struggling with the conflicts they're struggling, or or, or overcoming the obstacles they're overcoming, what they want to get uh, out of uh, of doing that. Exactly, because if I'm gonna be honest, I probably would just look at a breakfast scene or like a typical park scene, and I'm thinking, how is this moving the story along? And I think for me, because I always seek the dun 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 aspect i'm always looking for okay where's the moment where i'm just gonna jump out of my seat and thinking okay this is why this occurred i completely understand i'm just the kind of person that's just uh i always seek that fire well it's it sounds like you're a thriller slash mystery writer yeah i that's why i think i'm just completely obsessed <laughs> the uh uh another time another guy at thriller fest said that uh he never describes a bar room or an office unless there's some particular reason to have something there that tells you about the character or is important to the plot. Because, and this is another aspect of putting research into writing, is that readers already know or think they know what certain things look like. We've all been in a bar room. We've all been in a business office. We've all been on the subway. Well, everybody's been on a train or on a subway, a crowded bus, something like that. So we have this shared experience. Or we've seen movies where people have been on the subway. We have this this uh, shared consciousness of what this is like. So you, as the writer, can tap into that. You could say something like, it was a typical American office with... Uh, you know, a battered desk and piles of paper or something. And, and a people, little coffee cup on the side. Right. And people will get the picture. You don't have to say it was eight by 16 with nine shelves on each wall. There was a plaque over the door. You know, that slows the action down, One, slows the story down. That is, that's actually been a flaw of mine. I think I've been way too obsessed with describing the setting sometimes. And we can just tell that this is a restaurant. We can tell that this is a swimming pool. We don't right. really and, need and the descriptions. It's okay to write that initially yeah. in your first draft. But in your second, third, and fourth draft, you're going to cut a lot of that stuff out. I think, if I'm going to be honest with you, John, when I was in college, because I was a creative writing major, I remember getting so many red marks, red marks, and I would just think, oh my God, the world is after me. But, I would well, have such a shocker. That's one of the problems. Like, I love to read, but as a writer, you read differently uh, than as just a reader. And I, I just, for example, I just finished a book, uh, The Manchurian Candidate. I don't know if you know it. There was a movies, a couple movies made about it. Sounds familiar. I don't think I've heard it. I don't think it's I've a, seen it's it. kind of a spy thriller, uh, uh, assassination thriller kind of uh, movie. Okay. And uh, the books were, or the movies were very, you know, a lot of action and stuff. And it's a thriller. It's written by a guy named Richard Condon, who's probably passed away. I'm sure he has. He's 58. But uh, there is so much backstory on some of the characters. And they're not the protagonist or the antagonist. They're more uh, major characters, but not the key characters necessarily and there's like 30 pages of backstory and it's tremendous detail and all he's trying to get out of it is these people are highly political 
They're mean-spirited phonies, and their son raped and hates them. You don't need 30 to 40 pages to say that, because that's not the story. It's it's not that Raymond hates them. It's what they're doing to him and why that's important. This wouldn't have happened to have been a movie where soldiers were kidnapped, right? In the right, right. Gold Denzel Gold. Washington was in and the with 1990s. Meryl Streep. And Frank Sinatra was in the uh, 1962 version. And I think there was just such... Raymond was captured and he right, and brainwashed and told to kill members and he was struggling a lot with that. He becomes a a a and the and the idea of it is so riveting. The idea that you could be brainwashed to lose your guilt and will and basically do things that you would never do normally without even any knowledge of it. When that first came out, that blew people's mind. And there's an old saying that uh, story trumps writing. The writing can be flawed, but if it's a great idea, then that captures people's imagination, which is why this very flawed book, and I felt it was very flawed when I read it. Um, I almost stopped reading it, except I figured, this would be a good effort, negative examples to use teaching people. <laughs> but wow. uh, it, uh, even though it's flawed, the idea carried through to two successful movies. Really? I knew that that sounded familiar because oh, I'm going to admit something to you. I tend to. This sounds so bad to admit as an author, but I feel like so many times I used to have the bad habit of watching the movie and then reading the book. I do that too. I think sometimes the movie doesn't always do it justice. <laughs> well, they always say the book's always better than the movie. Well, in cases like The Manchurian Candidate, not Meryl so much. Meryl Streep and Denzel Washington were great. Oh, and so, and so were um, Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey and uh, Angela Lansbury in the 62 version. If you haven't seen that, I, I really recommend it. I haven't, yeah. but I will. And if anybody has watched it, please let us know. Please comment below. The, uh, because uh, it's basically what the movies did was they cut out all this background crap that slowed down the story and made you flip the page and say, how long does this go on? And they distilled that out. They made it into the action and the characters and how the characters are struggling, which is what the what the story is really about. Alfred Hitchcock has an old had an old saying where uh, he didn't worry too much about the MacGuffin. And his his version of what the MacGuffin is, is it's that thing that drives the characters to do what they do, but it's not the story. You know, it's the search for industrial diamonds or the hidden microfilm or or, or what have you, the murderer. Yeah. But it's how the characters do that search and how they're motivated and why they keep trying and how they overcome obstacles. That's the story. So the MacGuffin is the technical material that kind of gets you interested, but it's not what you're really following so it's probably not you don't need to describe it too much i think so and that is very true that's actually one of my biggest fears sometimes when i'm writing something or when i was writing my book i couldn't imagine somebody just wanting to turn the page but not because they wanted to know what was happening next but because they were just so bored and wanted to know what was happening or thinking that the story was going to move along. Well, you don't want people to skip. You really don't. <laughs> that was nerve-wracking. That was, I think, uh, a problem with uh, James Michener. And now he was a fantastic writer and certainly uh, wrote, you know, made lots of money, wrote great books. But he also included, like, he flew a hundred pages on how the geology of the Rockies formed. You know, it may be well written and it may be interesting from a historical perspective, 
geological perspective. Yeah. But a lot of people, uh, you know, would just flip through that and see where the story picks up again. And if you're not James Mitchell, you probably don't want to do that. Too much. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, he could do it, but I wouldn't try to write that way. So. Yeah, because if I'm going to be completely honest with you again, I have had the problem where I look at the blurb if I'm in a bookstore or if I'm at the library and I'm looking at the blurb first and I'm not immediately captured, I usually will not take the book. Well, that's the importance of the blurb, uh, the back cover blurb. It's basically your query letter. And I feel so bad be, when I do that. Embedded, instead of being to an agent, it's to the public. And you want them to be interested. I do the same thing. I, I read the back cover blurb. If it's an interesting idea, remember, uh, the story idea trumps writing. Yes. I then will read the first page. And if the writing's decent uh, and it's a great story idea, well, then I might buy it. And so that's why that first page, first sentence is so important and why that back cover blurb is so important. Can I ask you, I had, I was given the option to self-publish my book because even though when I was in college, I had been an intern for Penguin Random House and I had gotten a lot of connections through LinkedIn, through publishing houses and things like that. It was still tremendously difficult for... Oh yeah, uh, tremendously hard to get... Uh... To, to get an agent, for example, Especially so that you can... Especially when it's your first book and you have not published anything before. Right, right. Did you have any struggles with that? Because I felt like no matter how many query letters I was writing, it was still so hard for people to even give me a shot. Yeah, I mean, even at, like, Thriller Fest, where I pitched to uh, about eight thriller writers for checkout time, and I got some very positive feedback. One agent even said to me, I've been doing this for 25 years, and that's the best query I ever heard. Oh, wow. And she said, I don't publish thrillers right now like this, uh, you know, a, but, you know, it shouldn't be a problem. But even so, even though I got a lot of positive feedback, not one of those agents uh, wanted to sign me up. Oh, no, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, it's, it's very difficult for everybody. And the dirty secret is, and I've heard this from agents and publishers, is that they get so much, I mean, they're getting like 200 uh, queries a week. And they get so many that they look for reasons not to pick it. They're looking for specific things uh, that will get them big money from a major house. Uh, I had one of the agents at Thriller Fest say to me, that's a great idea. It sounds like a good story, the kind of story they make in the movies. But your name's not Dennis Patterson or, or James Patterson. I wish or Dennis was sometimes. Or, so why should I go with you? And he basically just said it that way. You know, I said, well, I have the idea and I think it's good writing. Said, yeah, I know, but... That's, it, I feel like that is the rudest thing you can say to anyone. Oh, they're, they're, they're not really too worried about being rude. I'm sorry <laughs> that happened to you. Agents, uh, people tell stories about agents, you know. There's the old joke, is you can be a good person or a good agent, but you can't be both. And uh, <laughs> Because they're so, kind of picky and choosy. It's like going on a first date. But you're, but you're absolutely right that... Uh, it's very difficult to get traditionally published. That's why I started looking at small presses, places that don't require an agent. And, uh, you know, they don't have the reach to get you to the big uh, pr presses, you know, the random houses and stuff like that. But you can get your book out there. That's you still have to do the marketing, but you have to do that if you have an agented uh, work anyway because the, even the big presses don't do any marketing anymore. You have to do it. I feel like this is going to be such a journey when I begin writing my next book. I have no idea if I will try to do self-publishing again. New Degree Press? What was it? New Degree Press? I, I have not, but there's a lot of them out there. Uh, there's a lot of small presses, too, which don't require... Uh, agents 
and uh, you know we'll take a we'll we'll not give you an advance, but they'll take a cut of the uh, royalties. I know. And uh, so, you know that may be a way to go. Uh, Self-publishing you can do too, but bear in mind. Uh, if you do it on your own, you have to be really careful. You have to hire the editor. The editor it needs to be edited, professionally edited, and that's expensive. Especially editing a like eighty thousand could be eighty thousand word book could be three four thousand dollars, three four five thousand dollars, and you have to handle the cover design. You have to handle or hire people, you know, and all those things. And that's where some of these self-published presses. They do that work for you for a fee, which is fine. But uh, you want it to be the best quality you can be. You want the book to be in the best shape it can be, and you want the it to look as good as it can be. You know, want it to read well. You want it to look good because if people read it and they don't like it, that's bad. But what is even worse is that they're not going to pick up your next book. Because they they remember they say I remember this person wrote something I hated, it was sloppy, it was unprofessional, and so they just pass you by, and so that's another important thing about not rushing into it. A lot of people say I wanted to get my book out there, so I just quickly I edited it myself and I quickly got it on Amazon. It only cost me one hundred fifty dollars or something like that. But it's like well, but nobody's going to like it, and they're not going to like your next book either, even if it's good. Can I tell you something, Joe? <laughs> when I first was writing my book, because I had first written it when I was 20, and then I got it published at 23 because a friend of mine had actually gone through New Degree Press, a completely great company. Um, I had paid obviously for the editing, the publishing, and obviously the royalties. I get all of them, and it it was a bit pricey if I'm gonna be honest. Um, I've actually mentioned before that self-publishing my book did cost me an arm, a leg, and a kidney. And maybe a lung, but <laughs> I feel I still felt accomplished, you know, because you know I, I managed to get my book out there. The book cover I had tremendous support editing it, and it took several months for me to do it. I also had fundraising, you know, people were willing to support my book and offering a lot of promotions with my book. So that was something very interesting. It was a uh, a very interesting process, self-publishing. I've never gone traditional publishing, but well, it's and and that's the thing. There are some people that will poo-poo. You know, you don't have an agent, and you're 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 self-publishing, or you went to a small press. Um, you know, it's not legitimate. But there comes to a point where you want to get your work out there, and it's become and agents and big publishers will tell you this too. It's become very very difficult. To get an initial uh, debut book out there, unless it strikes some chord, you know, racial injustice or uh, uh, something like that, that's very trendy at the time. But you know, if you're writing just a murder mystery or something like that, it's very tough because, and I've heard agents say, you know, we get 300 uh, queries and writing samples a week. And they're not all terrible. A lot of them are pretty good, but there's so many of them, and maybe we don't think it'll be a big seller, you know, because it doesn't capture that, you know, that story trumps writing kind of thing. So we're gonna pass, and you're also at the mercy of who's ever reading the slush pile, which may be a very junior person, you know, and. Yeah. Uh, So it's very, very, very difficult. Much more difficult than it was in the '60s and '70s when I was growing up, and when Stephen King was cutting his teeth. Uh, you know, I often wonder if some of these writers, like my my influences, like Hemingway and Stephen King, would have published as well had they been writing today as a debut writer than back in the the, the '50s or '40s or. 70s. Oh wow! When it was easier. That's. It's true. It is true. But like, managed to accomplish my dream. 
right. manage and that's, to do it. And that's not a little thing. That's a that's a that's a great thing. There's you know there's a lot of people. I always put writers into several categories. There's the people who want to write never do. There is the people who start books. It's easy to start a book. You know they have a lot of unfinished novels. They write five thousand words and they move on to something else. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the people who actually finish the book. And then there's the people who finish the book, polish it, do the editing, do the revisions, do the the hard work of designing a cover or getting someone to help you design a cover or whatever. That's a whole nother. That's just a. That's a. That's a small fraction. That's probably about less than five percent of the people who want to be writers. And so you're in a you're in an elite group in that respect. And like you say, whatever happens to you, your book is still out there. It may not be a bestseller, but it's still there. And for anyone who has who has any dreams to be anything, it doesn't matter if you want to be a chef or.、Um, A bodega owner. If it's your dream, anything is possible.、So、yeah, publishing yeah. is an option. It's, it's just、uh, a little、so、more、like、pricey, but it's it's okay. <laughs> that's why you have to treat it as a business and a hobby. You have to you have to work on it every day. You have to promote it like you would a business. But you, if you were if you were in it just to make money, just as a business venture, oh, writing is is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream that you know people will love it and it'll make a million dollars, but the reality is,、uh, it doesn't really pay that well. You do a lot of work, and、uh, you have to love doing it, or at least be driven to do it. That is definitely true, but I think you know, if your heart's really in it, anything is possible. I, I believe that. Thank you for having me on, and I just want to say.、Uh, Easiest way, and I know you're going to put these links up there. But yes, the easy, please. Easiest way to get to my books are, and I own these domains, so it's easy.、Uh, Checkouttimenovel.com, all one word.、Okay. Project ProjectSuicideNovel.com, all one word. These will take you directly to Amazon, where it's available in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle. Kindle's very reasonable, only two or three dollars, three, three or four dollars. That's amazing.、Um, and、uh, if anybody, I hope they read the book and like it. And if you do, the best thing you can do for an author, and most people don't realize this, they say, "Oh, I loved your book, blah blah blah." Write an Amazon review, give it a rating. It's easy to do. It takes less than five minutes. And. It means a lot because people decide whether they want to purchase a book based on those reviews, and Amazon decides where they place you in their marketing. You know, when you see these things that say "99 cent book," you know, and they list several of them, that's because those books got good reviews and they're uh, uh, edged up on the top of.、Uh, The Amazon marketing procedure, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so, so yeah, write a review if you like the book. Write a review and、uh, give it a, give it a star rating. You can even just give it a star rating if you want. You don't have to put a review. But, Thank you so much, and for all of you who have been listening to this podcast, I hope you've enjoyed. Please feel free to like, comment, subscribe. I wish you a great day, morning, afternoon, evening, or night, wherever you are in the world. Please stay tuned for next week, and until then, keep on sizzling.